Hello, and welcome to a special end-of-year bonus episode of Missing in the Carolinas. I've been hard at work researching new episodes and missing persons cases for you for the new year, but I also wanted to put together a sort of year-end review of how the podcast has developed and grown since its launch in May of this year. I personally enjoy when my favorite podcasts produce episodes that talk about growth, numbers, and all things content creation, so I thought you might find these topics interesting as well. If you're more interested in listening to episodes focusing solely on missing people, I suggest you skip this one and check out some of the more recent episodes, such as episode 15 or 18. Now, let's get started. In my very first episode called Three Mysteries in the Carolinas, I talked a little about how I first got the idea and the courage to develop my own podcast. I was at first inspired by a contest from one of our local public radio stations, Although I didn't advance in the contest, entering it forced me to put together an outline and proposal of what my own true crime podcast could look like. Here's a clip from that episode. One of my favorite marketing podcasts is Jenna Kutcher's Gold Digger podcast. I came across one episode titled Behind the Scenes of Podcasting with Kathy Heller. It's episode 132 of the Gold Digger podcast, by the way, in case you want to check it out. It's a good one. Kathy Heller is the creator of the Don't Keep Your Day Job podcast and nonfiction book of the same name, and she's also a very savvy entrepreneur. I felt like she was speaking directly to me when she said the following statement in the interview. I believe there are no extras in the game of life. I want my listeners to figure out and crystallize the thing that calls to them, how they can do it full time. It doesn't matter if others are doing it. If you're called to it, you'll find your way. When you align so deeply with something you care about, the world will unfold for you if you put the work in. Researching and reporting true crime is something I feel truly, wholeheartedly passionate about. I have for years. Before, I never had the confidence to follow through on the stream. After listening to this interview, which included a downloadable podcast checklist, I started brainstorming what this podcast would look like on paper. Little did I know that brainstorming a podcast idea on paper was only the beginning. I released the first episode of Missing in the Carolinas on May 1st, 2020. 18 episodes later, I've learned quite a lot about creating and producing podcasts. Here are just a few things I've learned. First of all, Writing down ideas for episodes is a lot different from learning how to do all the technical aspects of podcasting that I never before considered when I was simply a listener and a consumer. I knew I needed a good microphone, which I purchased probably six months before I pulled it out of the box. I have a Mac, so I figured I could start out recording and mixing in GarageBand, which I still use. Once I had my first episode recorded in GarageBand, I searched out a media host. I settled on SoundCloud, then read every step-by-step tutorial on how to create an RSS feed in SoundCloud that would then feed into the other podcasting networks, such as Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Most podcasts I listen to are backed by the resources of an entire network. People who are skilled at editing, layering in sound effects, scheduling episodes to drop, and helping with promotions and sponsorships. Independent podcasters, such as myself, do all the tasks themselves. When I first launched the podcast, COVID-19 had just reared its ugly head, and the state I live in, 
North Carolina, was under shelter-at-home orders. With no meetings or sporting events to attend, or basically any other extracurricular activities, I had a lot of extra time on my hands. This allowed me to research and record a large batch of episodes right off the bat. At first, I envisioned dropping at least one 25- to 30-minute episode a week. But once the restrictions loosened a bit, and I had to get back into my regular work schedule at a local publishing company, I realized producing an episode a week was a little ambitious when I still had to do all the researching, writing, and recording on my own. I had to readjust my expectations and decide that producing two episodes a month would probably align with my schedule a little better. Regarding the length of the podcast episodes, I'll admit I was pretty discouraged when I recorded the audio for the first episode, added in the intro music, uploaded the file to SoundCloud, and realized the episode would only be 13 minutes long. The episode was only meant to serve as a preview for the podcast, but I still believed it would be at least 20 to 25 minutes long once all the edits were added in. Boy, was I wrong. I was a little more hopeful when the first full episode about Zeb Quinn from Asheville was almost 20 minutes long, but I still had to put in many hours to write the script and research the news segments I could use as audio clips. I worried the episodes wouldn't be long enough to hold a listener's interest. Gradually, episodes grew to be a little longer, but after listening to interviews with other podcasters, I got more comfortable with my format. I've had listeners tell me they enjoyed listening to two or three episodes during one workout or drive to work. Some true crime podcasts I listen to run longer, clocking in at more than an hour or an hour and a half. There are times I forget to listen to the end of one episode if it's too long, or find myself having to space one episode out over the course of a few days because of my schedule. With the current format of Missing in the Carolinas, I'm confident listeners can usually finish up an episode in one sitting or close to it. Next, I've had to teach myself how to even write a podcast script. As a journalist, I have the basics of writing a good story down, but because podcast formats vary so widely, I didn't have a set template to go by. So, I created my own. Here's what I came up with. First, you have to develop a format. My podcast is a true crime podcast about missing people, so I decided on a short introductory paragraph that briefly describes the case, followed by the intro and then the overview of the case. I feel like formats are important for the main episodes of a podcast, so the listener always knows what to expect. This format can vary from time to time, such as with bonus episodes or episodes that include interviews, but I find myself drawn to podcasts where I know what the introduction will include, especially if it has catchy music. But that may just be my personal preference. This podcast has evolved a bit from my original vision. When I first outlined the concept, I thought it would only feature missing persons cases. But as I did the research, I became more interested in telling stories that were both resolved and unresolved. In some episodes, I feature a bit of both. As a true crime writer, this enables me to make the most out of my research and I feel like the listeners have appreciated this variety so far. In each podcast script, I also write in sound effects and audio instructions. Because I want to add sound effects to break up the sound of my voice, I add in where I want certain types of sounds. Dogs barking, someone knocking on a door, a car crash, etc. If I'm also going to use audio from another source, such as a TV news segment, I paste the hyperlink right into the script along with how far in I want to pull the audio so I can easily find it when going into the editing phase. 
I also read the script out loud a few times before recording. I didn't do this enough before I jumped the gun and started recording my first episode. I found myself stumbling over certain words and phrases and ended up revising the script as I paused the recording. If you read the script out loud first, chances are more likely that you'll find those problem areas that need tweaking before production begins. After my first few passes at writing, I also learned to compile any extra information in each episode's document for show notes. Show notes can be included directly in the episode information with the podcast when it's uploaded to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to yours. This can include any of your sponsor offers or codes, products you might be launching, additional links to information about the episode, and so on. I created a static page on my website with a running list of the episodes. I have a media player embedded directly on that page for anyone who wants to go there and listen to the podcast. Because I get information from a variety of news sources, I have a reading list on that page for anyone who wants to take a deeper dive into each case. Another thing I've learned while working on this podcast is just how much of an investigator I am deep within my soul. When I first developed the concept for Missing in the Carolinas, I was determined to try and make it different from other podcasts already out there. I've listened to podcasts where it appears all the host or writer did was lift notes directly from a Wikipedia page. I don't want to be known as someone who does that. So I read articles. I comb through photos and stats on the Center for Missing and Exploited Children website. I watch episodes of documentaries and true crime shows featuring cases from the Carolinas and take notes. I try to think of creative ways to package episodes, such as the one where I pulled two separate cases of missing children from the 1960s. This was the episode description for number 11, Four Lost Children of North Carolina. Two stories, four missing children. What happened to Diane Moon, Mark Yoli, and Alan and Terry Westerfield, who went missing from North Carolina in the 1960s? I found these cases interesting because both sets of siblings had parents who were affiliated with the military. In one, two brothers, Alan and Terry Westerfield, were last seen in the company of their stepfather, who was estranged from their mother. Diane and Mark were young children who went missing after heading to a nearby park to play. I watched archived news stories and dug through newspaper articles. Thanks to some investigative reporters working on cold cases, I found actual copies of the news articles that ran in the 1960s to help put this episode together. Imagine my surprise when I received an email from a man who is the older brother of Diane Moon and Mark Yoli. He was born the year after they disappeared. Never in a million years would I have imagined that a surviving family member would hear the episode and send me a message. He was very kind, thanking me for covering the story, and told me it brought up memories of the investigation that resurfaced back in the 1980s. He also mentioned he had learned some new information he didn't know before in the article, which as a podcaster working on a show for no pay, lifted my spirits at a time when I needed it. Before I share some of the podcast stats and growth trajectory, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. By day, I work as a journalist and magazine editor, but I also enjoy creative writing and entering writing contests. If you like writing flash fiction, you should check out the contests over at Wow Women on Writing. The deadline for the latest flash contest is February 28th. This specific contest will have 20 winners and more than $1,350 in cash prizes. First place 
wins $400. The contest is an open prompt, and WOW allows a maximum of 300 stories to enter. You can also purchase a critique to get more feedback on your writing. Learn more at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab. Let's get back to the episode. Now I want to share a few stats with you. This is always the part I love listening to on these type of year-end episodes. Full disclosure, as of right now, I don't earn any income off this podcast. My daughter and my husband both help me with sound editing. My editing skills in GarageBand still leave much to be desired. I prefer to be more of a producer, writing and researching content, and finding background music and sound effects. My goal is to continue growing the listenership so that my download numbers are favorable for attracting new sponsors and partnerships. I'm not there yet, but I also haven't done a lot of advertising and promoting of this podcast, so the fact that this podcast has grown as much as it has in the short time is encouraging. Promoting the podcast in a variety of ways is on my list of goals for 2021. I wanted to break down a few of the stats for the podcast. First off, Missing in the Carolinas has been downloaded 12,033 times as of December 22nd, 2020. Here are the five most downloaded episodes, along with the clip. Receiving 796 downloads is episode one, Three Mysteries in the Carolinas. Here's a clip from that episode introducing the first cases I investigated for the podcast. The case of Zeb Quinn has always piqued my interest because it occurred in my hometown of Asheville, North Carolina. Zeb was an 18-year-old local resident who was attending AB Tech Community College, working at a local Walmart, and saving money to buy himself a new car. On January 2, 2000, Zeb made plans to go and look at a car that was for sale after his shift at Walmart was over. His friend, 21-year-old Jason Owens, accompanied him. But here's where the story gets a little interesting. The two men were caught on a gas station surveillance camera picking up sodas and then driving off separately. Zeb never arrived home that night and was never heard from again. The circumstances surrounding Zeb's disappearance were suspicious, to say the least. Jason Owens said after leaving the gas station, Zeb had flashed his car lights on, indicating he wanted Jason to pull over. He said he needed to find a payphone to return a page, and Jason said he seemed distracted. This was back before everyone had a smartphone, and some people chose to carry pagers. According to Jason, Zeb drove off and returned about 10 minutes later and rear-ended Jason's car. He said he had an emergency to deal with and that he'd be in touch later. This is only the tip of the iceberg in this case, and the mystery of Zeb's disappearance resurfaced once again in 2015. We'll discuss this case at length in episode two. The disappearance of Kyle Fleischman remains one of Charlotte, North Carolina's saddest mysteries because it could happen to any of us. Kyle was a 24-year-old young professional who visited a bar in Uptown after a night out at a Dane Cook comedy show in November of 2007. When the group decided to leave, Kyle mentioned he wanted to stay a little longer as he had met a woman at the bar and was dancing with her. Video surveillance later showed that he got into a verbal altercation with two men, one of whom was dating the woman he had been dancing with. Kyle was most likely heavily intoxicated when he left the bar after last call without his coat, wallet, or debit card, as well as an open bar tab he left behind. 
Private investigators later learned he stopped at Fuel Pizza and bought a few slices to eat, probably with some cash he had on him. It was a cold night, and after eating the pizza, he made a few calls on his cell, probably looking for a ride. One was to his father, and another was to his best friend. Remember that this was before the days of smartphones and Uber Lyft apps. He was in a bind. A taxi driver reported seeing Kyle, looking cold, without a jacket, and disoriented, walking away from uptown and into a part of town that had a lot of construction going on at the time. His phone died, and no one ever heard from him again. His parents do have a theory about Kyle's fate, and that will also be revealed in a separate podcast episode about Kyle. Liz and John Calvert seem to have it all. Their story takes place on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, which is known for its beautiful beaches, miles of paved bicycle trails, picturesque golf courses, and tennis courts. Most people who have visited Hilton Head Island stay at the Sea Pines Resort or at least visit the area sometime during their stay. Sea Pines features a yacht basin with boutiques, restaurants, live entertainment, water activities such as kayaking and dolphin tours, and fishing charters. But on March 3, 2008, a prominent couple, well-known on the island, disappeared and were never heard from again, and the case has taken many twists and turns over the years. Elizabeth and John Calvert were two professionals who were truly living the dream. They split their time between Georgia, where Liz worked for a Savannah law firm, and Hilton Head Island, where John owned four businesses, including one that operated the marina at Hilton Head. At the time of their disappearance, they had been scheduled to meet with a man named Dennis Gerwing, who was the chief financial officer of the club group, a realty group that manages property on the island. The Calverts suspected money had been embezzled from their businesses and wanted to transfer the accounts from the club group. But no one ever heard from the Calverts again. Liz and John were legally declared dead in November 2009, but their bodies have never been found. Episode number two, Zeb Quinn, received 753 downloads. Episode three, Kyle Fleischman, has had 784 downloads. Here's a surprise statistic. Receiving 755 downloads was a bonus episode I put together for Halloween. Episode 17 is titled Monster in the Woods and it features me reading a short story I wrote a few years ago based on a murder that took place in the 1970s. I had grown discouraged because I couldn't find a home for this story, even after extensive rewrites. I'm thrilled that it turned out so well and had a lot of fun doing a reading of it for this podcast. Here is a preview of Monster in the Woods. From his spot deep in the woods, he watched them. Listen to the Bunnell campfire songs, watched them hold hands and sway back and forth on the lawn. He zeroed in on one girl with hair so blonde it looked almost white. Although he couldn't clearly see her face because of his nearsightedness, something in the way she moved reminded him of Suzette, the little girl in his fourth grade class who had been the first to point out his new glasses on that day so long ago. Look at Davy in his big old glasses, she'd giggled. Four eyes, four eyes, she'd shouted in a sing-song voice while all the others had followed with the chant. Four eyes! He'd been so stunned he couldn't even respond. While he'd been so excited that his world had finally come into focus, 
He didn't like what his new glasses helped him see. Davy had ripped them off his face, stuffed them in his lunchbox, and never put them on again. Now he watched as the girl with blonde hair threw her head back and laughed as she grabbed the hand of another camper and began to walk to their tent. He stood up, brushing the grass off his knees as he glanced at the lightning flashing across the sky. The most popular episode so far had ties to a syndicated TV show many true crime enthusiasts still watch on streaming services. Episode 14, South Carolina Cases Featured on Unsolved Mysteries, has received 873 downloads to date. A young couple possibly traveling across the United States are found murdered on a country road in South Carolina in 1976. Their identities remain a mystery. Who are Jock and Jane Doe? A man described as wearing a magic hat abducted four-year-old Jessica Gutierrez from her bed in 1986. Where is Jessica and who abducted her? Malachia Logan disappeared only yards away from her apartment complex in 1990, and her murderer has eluded authorities even though they have a strong suspicion of who he is. A young business owner is murdered in her hair salon and it takes more than 10 years for the man responsible to be captured. But is he also responsible for the disappearance of one of his missing girlfriends? And finally, a young woman meets an older man while on the rebound, but he soon turns out to have a drug problem and an abusive personality. Where has Lisa Myers Nugent been since 1999? And episode 12, North Carolina Cases Featured on Unsolved Mysteries, has been downloaded 629 times. A young girl driving home from an office Christmas party was shot in her car and left for dead on the side of the road. A nurse fails to report to work and is found days later in a retaining pond on her property, wearing clothes her family says did not belong to her. Was her death really an accidental drowning? A mother trusts some former high school classmates and winds up dead at the bottom of a rocky cliff. Her alleged killer still walks free some 30 years later. Two separate women decided to explore areas on the other side of the country from their homes in North Carolina and were never seen again. There was something so compelling about the cases discussed today that they were featured on a popular national syndicated television show. And while they include stories other than just missing people in North Carolina, I thought it would be interesting to explore the details behind why these cases eventually made their way onto a true crime show that is now available on several different streaming services. I'm thankful for every single one of those downloads. I feel certain I've grown as both a writer and a podcaster since I began this endeavor. I've also learned how I can use content created during this podcast on other platforms, along with leveraging my interest in writing about true crime. I have so many blog posts I've written that can be turned into bonus episodes of Missing in the Carolinas, and I plan to do more of that in 2021. Another thing I'm looking into for the new year is creating a Patreon account. As of right now, this podcast doesn't have one, but I've begun the process of researching the ways other podcasts utilize Patreon and what types of perks and extra content they offer their supporters. I also recently created a YouTube channel for the podcast and plan to create more videos related to the content found in Missing in the Carolinas. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode. Once again, 
I'm so thankful for everyone who has tuned in and offered their support for this podcast. Getting your notes about episodes that made an impact on you are the highlight of my days. I can't wait to see what 2021 brings. I'm also thankful for my sound editor, Mia Robertson, because I wouldn't have been able to launch this podcast without her technical expertise. Please also follow Missing in the Carolinas on Facebook and Instagram if you don't already. See you in 2021.